As a kid, have you ever wondered how to make your ideas come to life? Welcome to Spark, a podcast that empowers kids to learn, create, and become. Tune in weekly to hear great ideas. Wouldn't it be great if we could sell all of these toys and make money, and then use that money to bring books to the kids in India? It's about passion. Well, whatever your passion is, just keep following it. If A nine-year-old like me could follow my passion. Anybody could do it. I started following my passion when I was three and a half. It's about taking risks, especially as a middle schooler. Is you have to recognize that you have more time and more ability to take risks than anyone else. And it's about knowing how to deal with no's. I have a saying that says no is just an abbreviation for next opportunity. And so after every no, after every ten no's. You're still gonna get a yes. It can be a simple yes. It can be a really big yes. Listen to real stories about the impact you can create as a kid. I truly believe that anyone at any age can make a difference.、Um, you know, if you would have asked me and my parents if little five-year-old Catherine would have continued、uh, her fundraising efforts for so so many years and made such a big impact, we would have said, "What are you talking about? Like, there's no way that's gonna happen." And also encouragement from other kids to pursue your dreams and giving back. You're never too young or too old to start a business, or you're never too young or too old to give back to charity because it's very helpful for the kids in need. All kinds of real stories about kids and adult creators who have made real impact in the world. If you want to be inspired, subscribe to Spark. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Spark. I'm the host Lee. It is my greatest pleasure to invite Color Vigil, a co-founder and chief connector for Edu Leaders of Color in Rhode Island. Color also works as a district and school design senior associate at the Center of Collaborative Education, where she works as a thought partner in the development of frameworks and resources centered on equity. Culturally responsive teaching and personalized learning. Before that, she was an education strategy specialist with Highlander Institute, and also she has served as a fourth grade teacher before. So, hi, Color. Great to have you on Spark. It's so exciting to have you as part of our Change Makers in Education series. First of all, can you introduce yourself and also the Edu Leaders of Color, the organization that you have built? Yes,、uh, thank you so much、uh, for having me, Lee.、Uh, I feel really humbled and honored to、uh, talk about、um, education and specifically be identified as a as a change maker.、Uh, so yeah, so my name is Carla Vigil. I'm the co-founder of an initiative called Edu Leaders of Color, Rhode Island.、Um, we are excited to share that we're growing.、Um, Because there's a need, quite frankly, for equity in education, and so we are currently operating under our newly found organization called the Equity Institute. So, since this series, as I said, is about education, and I would love to learn more about your own like educational path,、um, did any part of your educational experience, you know, kind of stand out to you, or、um, kind of shaped your personality, or shaped? Like who you are, and that made you actually wanted to tap into this field, you know, at this point. Yeah, I'm、um, an immigrant. I from El Salvador. I came to America in 
three. I I came from from a country where you know the civil war was going on, and we we pretty much you know just really came here for for the same reasons that many many families come here for a better opportunity to to change our our trajectory of um, in life um, to make sure that we're successful and most importantly um, education that was something that was really really important to my parents because it was something that wasn't really available in in our native country so one of the things that that I do I think is um, important an important piece of my experience was that I had um, language barriers, right? My first language was Spanish. And so when I entered the very uh, uh, white dominated education system, there was no, there was no um, resources available for me. So I had to kind of like sink or swim, right? It was like, like that kind of model. Like I had to do what I had to do to really kind of, you know, come on top, get good grades um, without having resources and opportunities available for me. I think something else that really um, impacted uh, my my why um, is the lack of representation of teachers um, throughout my whole, you know, uh, educational experience. I maybe remember having two or one teachers of color. So, you, you know, you do the math, 12 years, 12 different teachers and maybe having two. And, and that once also was the curriculum reflected of my identity. Um, so there was no opportunities to really to have mirrors in, in the classroom and in my curriculum to, see, to learn about, um, you know, just Central America, period. It was a very European-dominated curriculum. And I think that that does um, impact uh, who you are and shape you. You internalize all these messages. And then um, that kind of surfaces um, as you become an adult. So as I became an adult, I, I felt like I was really like an imposter syndrome in certain spaces. Like I wasn't good enough. I felt very intimidated by white older men um, and so forth and so forth. And so why, why I do what I do today is really to change those traditional learning spaces that we've created for our students and, and to make it more reflected of a multicultural um, world. Um, that's, that's the world we live in. And so uh, I think with the education, we're always a little bit behind to what's really going on in, in, in the world. And, and so um, we can talk a little bit about that um, later, but it was it was really to provide opportunities and resources to our students, no matter their um, identities or backgrounds, ethnicity, race, social economic class, gender, religion, and so forth. We all deserve a quality education experience. Yeah, that's great. We'll dive in a little deeper into you know this um, conversation, but as a beginning conversation, yeah, I also. I would love to know more about the internal drive that keeps you like up at night and yeah, what do you want to kind of achieve, you know, because personally I think motivation is like the internal drive for a lot of students who keep learning and, you know, to chase their dreams. So the same as for adults, uh, what keeps you up at night and what do you want to um, bring, I guess, into the educational fields? Yeah. So what keeps me up at night, honestly, is knowing that our schools, and not all schools, but many schools, um, and I could only speak for the, the schools that I've been in, um, specifically in my, in my city in Providence, they're perpetuating inequities. And so 
as we, as an adult, I'm trying to dismantle systems that um, that are inequitable, and I'm trying to change systems. And when I what I see happening in schools, it's it's literally just perpetuating it, and they're perpetuating by not having. Um, qualified teachers or teachers of color, not having resources, not having culturally relevant curriculum, not um, creating um, safe and culturally safe environments for our students, not having high expectations of them. We're in a district in my state, in my in my city, where in some schools only this um, students are only reaching five percent proficiency for math and ELA. Our school district in Providence is 91% students of color. 80%, about 82, 83% of the teachers are white. That's just a disproportionate number. I mean, we we don't even have to do, you know, provide so much research to show you like, this is, there's a a reason this is happening and this is not right. Um, So trying to find solutions at and trying to be innovative in finding the solutions and also balancing my my health is what keeps me up at night you know it's like how do i how do i change this who do i partner with how do we begin to really see that change and like what do we do that'll really create impact so thinking about solutions you know um is is something that that i think about every day that's pretty amazing yeah like that you're helping you know students and also changing the school dynamics in a way that is not beneficial to you yourself on the personal level but for future like students for future leaders you know like a lot of students need this kind of environment yeah um since you talked a little bit about like say how you were reaching out to get resources and also finding solutions can you tell me like what a typical day you know would look like or like the recent event or things that you guys have done at Edu Leaders of Colors, yeah. Sure. So we started, it's a great story. Um, we started in 2016. Um, there were uh, a few of us, it was just me, a, f- a few friends who were all educators. We were actually working in one school. It was a charter school here in Rhode Island. Um, and that year, five of us left the school and we were all folks of color. And during our experience in the school, we had kind of like talked with each other and we were like kind of saying like, you know, what do you think about this policy? What do you think about the culture here? What do you think? You know, and just having critical conversations about um, how we felt really isolated, how we felt like we didn't belong, how we felt like we were not being valued nor respected. We decided to uh, basically have a, a small meetup. It's what we called a meetup and uh, talk about what's going on? What are the inequities that exist? Do we need this space? What can this space serve? And so it was very grassroots. We would basically um, provide space for leaders and educators of color to share their voice. So people that might not have um, the opportunity to, to, to do so in their everyday work. And so the idea was that we were creating this ecosystem in Rhode Island where we were empowering each other to look at ourselves as innovators and also to share our work that we were doing in the community or in the classroom. So it'd be a place of networking, sharing resources, ideating, and really a space of cultivating innovation. Today, our focus, you know, our topic is the impact behind teachers of color. So 
according to a report called State of Racial Diversity in the Educator Workforce, which was actually made in 2016, and it states that the elementary and secondary educator workforce is overwhelmingly homogeneous, which is 82% white in public schools. And education leaders also are predominantly white because in the 2011 to 12 school year, only 20% of the public school principals are individuals of colors. And I know you probably have a lot more um, statistics, and you just told me a little bit, you know, about that as well. Like, uh, are there more findings that you have or you had through edu leaders of colors, and that some of us are not aware of what's going on in the education system in the U.S. Yeah. So I think I mean that those findings are are actually really reflective of many cities. Um, Philly, for one. Um, had some cities that you could drive by, um, some districts, and you won't find one teacher of color. You know, uh, my our town here, we have districts that you can find two teachers of color, and they're the disciplinary folks. They're not even the teachers, right? Um, so this is a huge problem. I think uh, when you think about historically, um, the reason why we have such a high number of white teachers, it, it it's really, to be quite honest with you, uh, rooted in racism and in institutional racism. Um, there's no, a, you, you know, you can't argue that after uh, the Brown versus Board Education um, um, Supreme Court ruling, you know, we wanted to integrate um, the schools and say uh, to to our kids, like, you know, we should not have segregated schools. And so prior to that case, we had 80 in the South. This was in the South. We had 82,000 black teachers um, that worked in legally segregated schools. Um, and then after the Supreme Court's decision, more than 38,000 black teachers lost their jobs. So we talk a lot about integration and the importance of it, but we don't talk about some of like the 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 ramifications of that um, of that decision. So what happened is that they were integrated and, and you had many white leaders that came in schools and what they did is they fired everybody. They fired all the black leaders, they fired the black principals, um, and many black educators lost their jobs. And so then you talk about so that's like one one I think um impactful um uh, event that that took place um that kind of speaks to why we have a lack of teachers of color but then then you have to consider the certification process. You have to consider right um the the cost of going to college. Um also uh, the the if we've actually made some some steps in recruiting um, teachers of color since like 1987, um, and this is according to Shanker Institute's report. And however, that report states that we lose at a very a much higher rate teachers of color because of the lack of culturally responsive. Um, environments. So when you're entering a workforce and it's white dominated and it's based on their culture, their policies, their practices, you feel left out and and it doesn't work as exhausting. So we're leaving at faster rates um, than our white counterparts. So 
those are just some 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 I think key points to to think about, you know, why the numbers look the way that they do. And now, you know, we're facing teacher shortages. And I mean, if you think about the cycle, if you have students in schools and they can't connect to their teachers and they don't look at them as mentors and they don't look at them as role models, there's a lack of, first of all, engagement, but there's a lack of, of wanting to become a teacher. So how do we get, how do we create a pipeline um, of teachers of color? Well, you, it really needs to start at an elementary level, right? It really needs to, we need to start thinking about, well, how do we how do we get students to really look at teachers as a profession where where they feel respected where they're going to feel like you know this is this is an area that I want to go into and that I can honestly afford right cuz it's about affording it and then after it's about um, being able to pass this standardized test i know in, in Rhode Island we have to take the process when i became a teacher i took the science part of it 6 times the math I took eight times. Every time I took those tests, it cost me money. Now, luckily, I was able to pay it and I tried and tried, right? My self-esteem was shot. It was shot. You're very persistent, yeah. For a lot of people, they probably give up already, yeah. This is where we have the conversation about teacher prep programs because we know some high school students here that um, there are teacher prep programs that require they take a test to just to get into the program. So as soon as the kids hear it, oh, we have to take a test, I don't want to do it. Because they, they they feel like they're going to fail, right? That's what Claude Steele um, coined as stereotype threat, that no matter what, right, like I'm going to sit down and take this test, I'm going to fail um, just because of my past experiences. Um, so for me, you know, that's, and, and this goes into another topic, standardized testing, are completely biased, you know. I I do believe we have to have some sort of measure, absolutely. And I do want to um, not only increase the number of teach of, of teachers, teachers of color, but we need qualified teachers of color too. So I'm not. We don't. We're not saying that we just need teachers of color, and that's gonna it's gonna solve everything. We're not saying that. No, that goes hand in hand with having qualified teachers of color that have the support that are getting the trainings that they need to be strong. Um, leaders in the in the classroom since we actually talked about you know like in the topic of like say talking about teacher prep um, in this whole pipeline of getting people to become teachers of colors yeah besides those things that you talked about you know financial difficulties and even the standardized test that might not for everyone or from every culture and background and what are other challenges, I guess, for these kind of teacher prep preparation programs or things that, you know, help people to become a teacher that is somewhat challenged, yeah, in the process? First of all, like, I know, and again, I can speak to Rhode Island, um, our teacher prep programs are not recruiting enough um, folks of color. So, you know, you'll have a program and you'll have, you can have 25 students and have two students, that are, 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 um, are people of color. But why is it the awareness of the teacher, you know, program existence? Or is it more about like, say, people are not encouraged to become a teacher? Yeah, like, what is the reason? Well, I I, th I think it's a little bit of both. Um, uh, for instance, like I mentioned, I had uh, one student who um, wanted to become a teacher, but she couldn't pass a test in the teacher program. So her advisor told her, hey, study soci sociology. Um, so 
so it's a it's a combination of different things and it's all um system wide right and it's practices and it's policies so if you're going to have if 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 we want to change this we have to also work with um the teacher prep programs which we are here in Rhode Island to look at their curriculum as well because they need to look at it from the from all angles who are we recruiting? How are we supporting them? How are we mentoring them? How are we empowering them? And then what does our curriculum look like? Because another problem um, that we have in, in, in prep, teacher prep programs is that they don't prepare even the white teachers um, adequately, right? They take no, no um, course on culturally responsiveness, or equity, and so you have teachers that come out and they 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 go into di their diverse um, communities and they fail miserably. They have issues with connecting with the students. Their cultures are different. They don't know how to engage, and so that that impacts students' learning. So I think that it's a number of things uh, from um, thinking about what are their approaches and how who are they getting in into the programs how are they getting students into the program what kind of support systems are set up um, what kind of financial um, support do they have for students and how are they able to shift and be flexible to meet the needs of those students right so um, you know we have to think of alternative um, ways too of getting of getting students into 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 the teaching prep programs and um, I think that here what we're, what we're doing is having kind of like critical conversations with the Department of Ed along with um, institutions to really look at their teacher prep programs and to look at their numbers and to start shifting in their their policies and practices so that they are intentionally recruiting and keeping um, students of color in, in, in their programs. I was also thinking about, you know, like the probably ad a college admission test, like people will not use um, SAT score as the only criteria for getting student into college, right? Because yeah. a person like you're right, what kind of, you know, whatever characteristic that person has or personality and for teachers even more important because the teacher's personality and their care and the love for the student cannot be measured through a standardized test, you know? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, a lot of those charismatic, you know, things that you see in a teacher that can actually change a student life. However, is not measured um, somehow in the test. Yeah, so it's it's just you know an interesting thing to think about. Absolutely, for us, the what we think and what we express to to um, through our trainings is if you're in a classroom and you cannot engage your learners, and you cannot build trust, or you haven't built trust with your learners, and this usually, you know, you have to set this up in the first six weeks of school, right? You set up your expectations, you set up your community culture. It's gonna be really, really challenging to build that that trust and to build that culture later on in the year. And if you don't do it, what's gonna be really difficult is to engage your learners. If you don't have engaged learners, they're not gonna wanna learn. And if they don't wanna learn, they're not gonna succeed in your class, right? So, so it's all, it's again, it's all interconnected and it really, really does start with 
first of all, how do I know my students? Who are they? What makes them who they are? What's their family life like? How do I create a culture that where my kids respect each other, respect the, um, you know, respect their identity. So whether they're adopted, whether their races are different, they eat different foods, they live differently. How do we create a culture where we respect each other and we embrace people for who they are? And now we're going to learn with each other and we're going to have hard days sometimes, but we're going to learn with each other and we're going to think critically about our content. We're going to have engaging conversations. So these are, you know, these are things that a teacher thinks about. I mean, at least I thought about it and it's a very, very hard job. It's the hardest job I ever had. Um, but I know that my, my students, they trusted me and I had high expectations of them. And so when I talked to them, you know, in a very stern way and said, you need to get this done. They knew that I could talk to them that way because they knew I respected them. And so I showed them that. And so they had respect for me. Uh, so, so I say that because, um, I think that part of having that skill set is understanding that I came into the classroom with biases, that I came into the classroom with my own identity, with a, my own lens that were shaped and from my experiences in my life. And so I knew I had to check myself when I was calling on the same student all the time. Or if I didn't, you know, if I were, was not paying attention to a certain student, I'd ask myself, why did I do that? And so I was able to reflect and modify um, my instruction or, you know, fix whatever issues that I was having to make sure that I built a, a community where I was providing good education and a good, good learning opportunities for my students. Uh, and so... That is something I learned in my residency program around social justice and multicultural education. And I don't see that happening in other teacher prep programs. And so that's where I think that what we're missing um, important information to developing our teachers. And so what we're trying to do with the Equity Institute and our design labs is really to get teachers to think in that way, to think that they have to start with self. If they don't understand who they are, how can they begin to understand a student who comes in with so much stuff, you know, from their family home, from their community? They come into the classroom like that, you know? How are you going to help that student? Got it. Yeah, yeah. We covered this question actually uh, a little bit already. Like, why is it important to have more teachers of colors? Because you said that definitely if you can engage your students and then they can learn much better right in the whole um yeah in in this in classroom and everything yeah so do you have examples of say for a classroom or a school system that lack of teacher of colors or teacher you know diversities in the classroom and what what can happen to students I think that diversity diversity is inherently valuable. We know that from research. We know that from companies that are successful. They talk about how having multiple perspectives and ideas really cultivate innovation, cultivate community, learning opportunities. It's the same thing in a school. Uh, for instance, for me, being an immigrant, um, going through the school system, Spanish being my first language, 
that makes me very relatable to my the students in Providence. We have 91% students of color, but 60 over 60% are Latino students in Providence, right? So when they see me and they say miss, or, or if, if they have a, and, and then we have a large population of um, multilingual learners, um, they'll, you know, that's the term that I use. They use English language learners, um, but they see me and automatically they know they could talk to me they could speak to me in spanish um from my experience i am chinese I, i've actually taught at college level for in the south for five years and i do found that um, a few chinese students tend to connect with me more frequently than you know how they connect with other professors yeah so i almost feel like the culture barrier is removed when they were trying to communicate with me and they were much more open and worry less about how they look, how they would make mistakes and so on. So do you think is that the case for students from other backgrounds or students of colors when they were communicating with teachers and professors from similar background? Is there anything like any other connection that is happening besides the communication barrier is removed? Oh yeah, I absolutely think think that there is um, um, really deep, valuable connection connection happening there, and I say that also um, knowing that um, you, you know you can be different than your student and still connect with them and still support them, right? Like that. You know, we're not saying that. However, as I mentioned before, the teacher prep programs are not adequately preparing our teachers to be culturally responsive and to know how to respond to different backgrounds and cultures. But here, um, um, I've seen it definitely happen with some um, some of our um, folks in in our edu leaders of color network, right? Where we have like you know, um, black and brown teachers in a high school who can create solid relationship with their high school students. And the kids will tell you, you know, the kids will say, um, you know, miss, you know, you understand us, miss, you understand how I talk. If I talk like this and I'm moving my hand and I say, ain't, you're not reprimanding me and you're not judging me. Right. And, and, and in some cases, um, a white leader or white teacher might so because might do that um, because they the way that they define success or the way that they define how you speak or what articulate is does not fit that same definition of somebody who's different than than them right so when you think about norms when you think about values um culture tradition all these things who who's defined them in the past you know centuries right like who's made it the norms right and who says what is success or what is not success and so those kind of um behaviors definitely um impact your the relationships you build with students and and the and the practices that you implement in in classrooms with students um with students and and in cases uh like here with students of color um they become oppressive like those that norm norms which is white very white um uh, uh dominant that is oppressive to certain students so for example i was in a classroom one day observing um a teacher 
and it was a it was a school in Providence and she was a white teacher all kids of color and a kid said um was talking to they were I think like in second grade was talking to another student and he said uh something like yeah brah you know he said brah which is your b-r-u-h brah and the teacher stopped she was working with some other students she teacher stopped and said I don't remember his name let's say his name was um uh, John or something. Uh, John, um, what did I say to you about saying that word? And so he was like, oh, okay. Like, I'm sorry. And stopped and went about his business. And so when I um, debriefed with my with my colleague, who was also a white male, um, a, a white, I said to him, did you notice that when, you know, the student said the word bra, she reprimanded him. And to me, that's a problem because my son says bra. And there's nothing wrong with saying bra. That is a cultural thing. And so she's at that moment, what she's doing is projecting her idea of what is not appropriate and what is appropriate, you know? And so that kid is already internalizing this. Like, oh, I'm saying bra, it's not good, right? So these are these messages that our kids receive daily, daily. And so... I, I truly believe that it's the teacher's responsibility to think about that, right? Like, how do you embrace that student's culture? Because at home, he says, bro. In the community, he says, bro, what's wrong with that? Nothing, you know? And so that's just like one small example. I've been in classrooms where the teacher doesn't call the students by the correct name. Or, you know, one, one classroom I was observing and the little girl's name was like Nayeli. And she, the teacher was calling her, this is like third grade. And she was like, Nayeli. And that's how she called her, like throughout the whole Nayeli. And I'm like, oh my goodness, her name is Nayeli. I know you could say it like, like nicely and smoothly. You don't have to stop after every syllable. Um, so, you know, it's, so it's like, you know, and, and, and there are small things like that, but they are really, that's the community that you're, that you're building. Right. Um, so all those, all those factors are, are important from here, from wearing hoodies, like in Providence, you can't wear hoodies. Like what, you know, what is that? What are you saying to, to, to kids? What messages are you sending? And so that to me would be a very like, like white dominant kind of um, perspective and policy. You can't wear hoodies in our district. So, so, so those are kind of like some, um, some, some examples that I guess I gave you more negative examples, but positive examples would be the opposite of that, right? Like you empower them and you can actually have a kid take the word bra and look up the root. Where did that come from? Where is it used? Is it used in lyrics? Cool. Like, you know, how would you extend that word? How would you define it? Do you think it needs to be in the dictionary? Who gets to choose what words are in the dictionary? So, you know, you ask questions, you make kids think about it think about right you think and then you push them to think critically because I would have taken that and made a whole lesson out of it you know um my kids in when I had of uh, I was teaching fourth grade we had to learn about the the um depression the great depression and they gave me this big like pack of paper it was a charter school and it was like it was like inf what they call informational text history so I didn't really care about it because they don't test for that so I had more flexibility and autonomy to do what I wanted to do. So they gave me a big stack and they say, here's a curriculum. And I just like threw that curriculum away. And so I I said, okay, we're going to do the Great Depression. We're going to learn about 
folks, this is what I said to myself, I didn't tell my students, folks that don't, um, are not normally, their voice is not heard in history. And so we studied um, Takao Ozawa. I don't know if you're familiar with him and his um, uh, 1922 um, Supreme Court case on um, uh, the right to, to, it was actually his, he was trying to get his nationality and he was trying to claim to be a white man because during the time um, you can only have citizenship uh, or get your nationality if you were white or black. And so he had been in the country for 20 years. And so we learned about Takao I couldn't find resources in that. It was very few. I had to actually take the information and kind of um, build it on my own. But then they, the students also had to think about their identity. So they thought about Takao Zawa's identity, like his um, race, his gender, and then his um, his citizenship, right? And then they had to think about themselves and they compared it and they learned the whole the essential question was, um, you know, uh, should you should your race determine whether or not you should get natu uh, be naturalized in in um, in America, and so the idea was that we his voice was not really being heard in history, and so we gave the students the opportunity to learn about that and an opportunity to really get to think about their identity as well, and and how do the two maybe relate, not relate, and what does that mean? And so fourth grade, and and they could tell you who Takawazawa was, you know. So I knew you studied social justice and multicultural um, education for your master's degree as well. So what would a perfect learning environment be, you know, for students coming from different backgrounds? Yeah. And uh, if you were to add this cultural responsive elements into a classroom, like uh, to prepare teacher who are coming from different backgrounds, you know, like maybe a white teacher, an Asian teacher, yeah, who sit in a classroom that has many students coming from different uh, race background and diverse background and what what would you um, do you know to prepare such a classroom or such teachers to be ready for that kind of group yeah students we believe that education is the entry point to disruption um, there are a lot of different buzzwords being used in in the education world you have um, folks really you know pushing for yeah, they're saying personalized learning. They're saying, hey, do blended learning, use technology. Hey, let's do student-centered learning, um, learner-centered, uh, student voice, all these different elements, right? They're all great. They're all great. However, we believe if you do not have, um, or if you do not start with being culturally responsive and understanding what equity means, those strategies were not, they're not going to be effective, right? Because... When you are culturally responsive, um, and um, there, there's a, tons of research, you know, Geneva Gay's um, work, Gloria Lassen-Billings, James Banks, the godfather of, of multicultural education, they are, they've been doing this work. They are the pioneers. They've been doing this work for decades, right after the whole civil rights movement. Um, this has been an issue. So I think it's, it's, it's starting to gain some traction now. And I think it's just like the climate of our country. Um, it's, it's why we're starting to think about like, oh, yeah, we should be culturally responsive. You know, we should use um, students' cultural characteristics to um, inform our work every single day. And so that's what culturally responsiveness means. You know, I always we always stress to our teachers and leaders, like, let's not think about this as a label. Like, I don't want you to think, oh, like I'm doing culturally responsive. I'm doing equity. No, you are that. Like, this is something that happens naturally because of who you are. Because basically, if you believe in humanity, 
then you have to be able to connect with people, to respect multiple um, perspectives, right? And to understand who people are, even if it's different from you, right? So when you walk into a classroom, one thing, you know, um, that I often when I observe a classroom and I'm looking for, you know, just a good learning space is that, you know, I'm listening to the teacher's tone. I'm listening to their language, how they're calling students, um, how they're engaging with students. I'm, I'm looking at their, the curriculum. I'm looking at the walls. Do the walls, what do they have on the walls that represent the students? Is it student work and they only have five of the students, um, uh, you know, um, work up there? Why or why not? Like what kind of messages are they sending to their, to their um, class? I'm looking for collaboration opportunities. I'm looking for cooperative learning. So students are, are engaged with each other, asking each other questions. I'm looking for the teacher to do, um, to make sure that they're dipsticking so that they're asking kids, to, does this make sense? Does it not? Um, how they're hooking their students into their lesson. Uh, so these are all different elements of good teaching and they're, they're elements of, 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 of coach. They become elements of culturally responsiveness because as a teacher, you use your students identities, who they are, what they can relate to, to engage them in the learning. For instance, when I used, um, when I started a lesson, I'd put a picture of something and I'd be like, what do you think this is? And it, it might have been of my family. It might have been of somebody in, 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 in the classroom or something that I knew they would be connected to. So I had to make those informed decisions every single day. Um, and, and that's what, what it, what, what culturally responsive means. You know, we know cognitively that in order to, um, in order for students to create new knowledge, you have to um, activate their prior knowledge, right? So if you're starting a lesson and you're just giving it to your like students, here you go, you're going to do this, and the student doesn't understand that, has no background knowledge of it, they cognitively, they shut down. They shut down and that's when they become disengaged. So your job as a teacher is to say, hmm, how do I get my students to get engaged? Say I'm learning about digestive systems and I have a room of, of kids that are, you know, from, for me, it would be from Providence. They're mostly, you know, Dominican or Puerto Rican. You got Guatemalan. So I kind of like know what kind of foods that they like. And so I could put a picture of a plate of food, right? And then the kid is like, oh, I know what that food is because I eat it at home. So they're raising their hand and like, oh, that's, that's arroz, huevichuela. Or that is, you know, pollo guisado. And so they start talking and they start getting engaged. I'm like, great. That's exactly what it is. What do you think this happened? What happens when you eat this food? I don't know. It goes in your stomach. It does this. It does that. And then you introduce, great, we're going to be learning about that digestive system and we're going to learn what happens to that arroz con habichuela that you eat, you know? And um, and so we'll be taking like time to really engage in that. And then you could even push it forward, um, push it deeper to to really explore like, where do you get those foods, right? And 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 it could get deeper where, where does it get grown, Um are there food deserts in your community? And then it could become really about like this like social justice um, topic where that they're kind of like um, identifying and mapping kind of like food deserts, right? And why do we have a bodega like in every corner? What's at the bodega? Chips, candy, and how much does it cost? 25, okay, what do you think that does when you digest it in your stomach and how long does it take? And so 
voila, you know, and that would be an example of just being culturally responsive. Um, and it's just good teaching. That's what I say to folks. It's just good teaching. Right. And, and, and you're, it, you should be able to do that in many different ways. And it doesn't always have to be, it could be a different plate that they've never seen. Right. The idea is that you're providing windows and mirrors, um, mirrors so that they see themselves in the classroom windows. So they see the world outside. You know, when we did Takawazawa, there was not one Asian person in the whole building, that was a problem for me, you know, and and I was like, where are they going to learn about, you know, a culture that's different than them? they had Spanish, they had Cape Verdean, white and and black, no Asian. And so that was my opportunity to show them that there was a significant person in history that was that 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 fought and that wanted to be part of 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 society and contributed, you know, and so those are kind of decisions that should be happening i think and um thoughts thought processing that should be taking place in a teacher's in a teacher's mind yeah wow that is pretty amazing from that food example alone that i knew the importance of to have you know educators of colors because me personally you know I like I do not know the background. I do not have experience eating, you know, the type of food and I don't have any history I can explain to the student, you know, to the same level of what you have just to show student and intrigue their curiosity and ask questions and really make them learn to the same level that, you know, that you can. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So to wrap up, I would love to get some encouragement and also suggestions from you for uh, you know, teachers of colors and also kids of colors who are still in school. Yeah. So what is your hope um, for teachers of colors who are, you know, who are thinking about tapping into the educational world and also for the kids who are currently in school and may or may not have, you know, the uh, level of resources that the, you know, the co of teacher of colors who can actually culturally respond um, to them in the classroom. Yeah. I would say that we need more representation and um, if we want to change and break cycles, and what I mean by cycles is just cycles of, of struggling, of poverty, of injustices, of, of it, all the inequities that have impacted so many um, groups of color for such a such long time that we're still talking about some of the same topics that, that took place 60, 70 years ago, um, we need more change makers. So for, for the young folks that are considering, you know, are of, um, identify as, as folks of color, we need you in the classroom. The young kids, it's time for, for, for them. They're the future, right? They're the future and they can be critically conscious and they could become whether, whether it be teachers of color or policymakers, because quite frankly, we need more policymakers so that so that we can really have a bigger effect, systems level um, effect and impact in our country. That's great. Thank you so much, Carla. Yeah, for your time. Yes, yes. Thank you, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So that is the chat with Carla Vigil. Indeed, U.S. is an immigrant country, and this is the place where we can experience every culture, enjoy all the food, and meet people from all over the world. That's why diversity is so important, not only in school, but also in workplace and our communities as well. So let's try to understand and respect each other's culture. 
let's embrace educators, leaders, and entrepreneurs of color, and let's build a great future for kids to succeed from every culture and every background. Thanks, Carla, again for chatting with me at Spark. If you're listening to Spark, I would love for you to leave us some comments and reviews on iTunes. You can also suggest me what kind of topic you would like to listen. Also, please recommend Spark Podcast to your friends and family who are interested in making an impact with their creative ideas. Thanks, everyone, again for listening to Spark, where all kids are empowered to learn, create, and become. I am the host Lee. I will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Spark Creators Podcast at PeachandPlumLab.com.